Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, 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 really appreciate your support. And if you don't know what our Patreon subscription is, it involves small episodes, mini failures of Failureology that you can listen to. And it costs less than three liters of gas at the current gas prices. That's less than a gallon of gas for our American listeners. So for that cost, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures and a whole host of other sidetracks and tangents that we seem to get off on. So what happens is we research all of the failures on our list over time. You know, we're working through a very long list, as we've mentioned before. But some of them, even once we get through the research, we just don't have a lot of information. Some of them happened a really long time ago. Some of them aren't very well documented. We end up with these shorter episodes that we, at first, weren't really sure what to do with. And so we created this Patreon page as an, I guess, an outlet for those extra episodes. So those, we call them bonus episodes. They're really similar to our regular episodes. They don't have any news. There's a lot more especially train and plane tangents, a lot more. We kind of get a little bit into the weeds a bit there. But they're essentially the same you know, type of content that you're getting on these episodes. You're just getting more. So instead of getting an episode every other week, you can get one every week because our bonus episodes come out on the opposite Sunday from our regular episodes. We try to keep them 15 minutes, try to keep them shorter. You don't need the full half hour plus like you would to listen to this episode. Give it a shot. You never know. You might like it. Yeah. Only $5 Canadian a month. This week in engineering news, robot bugs that can go anywhere. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I'm not sure. I don't like bugs being able to go anywhere. That doesn't seem like a good idea. I have mixed feelings about this one. But I still think this is really cool. For sure. I just not, uh, I don't want them to do exploratory research on me with these bugs is what I mean. Which we'll talk about. As you've probably experienced in your life, if you have literally gone outside or even if you've just stayed inside your entire life, bugs are everywhere. They go into cracks, they go under the doors, they go into places that you didn't even know that they could get into. And sure enough, there's bugs. Which is why researchers at the University of Pittsburgh use them as an inspiration for their tiny robots which are designed to complete tasks in hard-to-reach places and in inhospitable environments. So these robot bugs are made of polymeric artificial muscle, and they're built to jump around like a flea. They're made of a curved composite shape and use built-up energy from a few volts of electricity and then release that energy to spring or jump forward. So these really are built off of a model of a flea. Which is really cool. So last year, I believe it was sometime during COVID, I did see a video of this in action. And it's a very neat method of locomotion that these researchers were able to adapt, I guess, from bugs and from fleas into, you know, a, a device that, you know, hopefully, you know, can can see some promising benefits over the next couple years or decades. Brian, you said locomotion. I didn't even mean to say locomotion. It's not a train tangent. Those are only for the mini episodes. I heard that and all I thought of was trains? Trains. No. No. No, no trains. No, no trains. Unless, unless maybe in the future they can connect these bugs together and then they will have a train of bugs. That's not making this better. 
Due to the lightweight and small size of these robots, they can jump across sand and even water relatively easily, which is also pretty cool. The possible applications for these robots are pretty much endless. The first thing that comes to mind for us is diagnostic imaging or environmental or structural evaluations, even collecting water samples. These are great to send in after a building collapse or a natural disaster to see if there's any survivors that need to be rescued. Taking water samples in hazardous locations, taking air samples in hazardous locations. The video for the bugs is actually really cool, like how they, because I I watched them do a little like uh, moving through rubble and stuff. It's really neat how they how they were able to take, I don't know, like a snapping motion. I, I don't know what to call it, like the, the the flea method of moving. And it's like adapted. And this is it. I think for um, for rescue operations, it'll actually be really cool. Yeah, I immediately assumed these bugs are for human bodies. They're not. There's so many other cool things they can do with this. It's pretty interesting. So if you want to read more about the robot bugs, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failurology.ca. Not satisfied with buzzing your hair? Don't want to pay the price of an excellent Clips haircut? When you want a mediocre haircut for a mediocre price, Mediocre Clips is your out-of-bathroom haircutting destination. Same burnt-out light bulbs as your bathroom, but our stylists have slightly more hair-trimming experience than you do. Mediocre Clips. When okay is good enough. Now on to this week's engineering failure, the Luna Park Ghost Train Fire in Sydney, Australia. This one comes to us from a listener. Fantastic recommendation. I've actually been on a bit of an amusement park ride failure kick lately. I kind of went down a rabbit hole. We, I think I've talked about this before, but we covered the Concaria amusement park ride failure on one of our mini episodes and a listener commented back recommending a couple other amusement park ride failures and it kind of just spiraled out of there. I do love to read about these engineering failures. I love podcasting and, you know, talking to Brian about these failures, but the research is really my favorite part. And so I went down a whole rabbit hole, found a bunch of failures. They turned into this episode and Uh, a bunch of mini failure episodes, and there's more to come because I'm still kind of working through that list. But thank you again to the listener who suggested this. You know who you are. Yeah, I I think including this episode, we have four, at least three other amusement park related episodes that we've done. Yeah, so interesting and all different. So the first one was uh, a structural malfunction of the ride. The one of the other ones was a water malfunction. So one of the pumps failed. And then this one's a fire. So this one's completely different. I mean, this is a fire that happened to be in an amusement park ride. This fire really could have occurred in any other type of building. It'd still be just as interesting to talk about. I think the ride does bring an an interesting factor to the story. But um, yeah, this this type of fire we've definitely kind of seen before, unfortunately. We don't, we don't seem to learn from these ones as well. So the fire broke out on the ghost train ride on June 9th, 1979, around 10.15 p.m. So about 43 years ago this month. In fact, the 43rd anniversary was 10 days before this episode came out. And Luna Park is located on Milsons Point on the north side of Sydney Harbor, opposite the Sydney Opera House. Yes, I Google mapped it, as I do for all of these. That's pretty much just a given. Anytime there's a location involved, which is 
pretty much every episode. Um, Nicole will definitely Google map them, go into the Google Earth thing, pan around, find a coffee shop, drive around in Google Earth. So yeah, she kind of gets the, the lay of the land to figure out uh, figure out what's around uh, where these incidents occurred. I have an inquisitive mind. So fun fact, I just booked a hotel for a conference that I'm going to in the fall. And I have to walk from the hotel to the conference center. And I Google street viewed the entire route just to make sure that it seemed like a walkable route and it looked safe. And it did. Do you remember the time before Google Earth um, and Google Maps existed? Yes. Ask Jeeves. That was one of them. And MapQuest directions, you had to print out, you had printed directions. Yeah, things have come a long way in the last, uh, last 15 years. I also had a paper map, like a full-size one, and I had a book map so you could flip to certain pages. The thing that's unfortunate about paper maps is there's no blue dot that tells you where you are. So if you get lost, it takes you a while to figure out where you are on the map so that you can find your way out. The blue dot's very helpful because you're like, oh, I'm right here. Now where do I go? Very, very helpful. We've come a long way. It is very helpful for sure. And in our airplanes, so we, we run some fairly small airplanes, all of our pilots have, have iPads and have kind of mapping type software on there that's approved for air navigation. But as a backup, they still have to bring paper charts. Um, so there's a fairly regular cycle where the IFR charts get updated. Um, it's every 56 days. And then the other charts that are look more like normal maps, those get updated on a on a semi-regular cycle as well. But yeah, we still carry paper maps in some of the airplanes that we fly. Well, like we've mentioned many times before, it's not like you can just pull over to the side of the road. The iPads are definitely the preferred method for all of our pilots. There's so many more tools just at your disposal and it's visually, it's a little bit easier to figure out where you are. You don't have to reference various landmarks or navigation beacons. It's just, it's there. It's it's very similar to what you have in your in your car for aviation use. Before we get to the fire itself, though, we should talk a little bit about this ride. So when Nicole first mentioned the ghost train, I figured this was kind of like the ghost whip. Maybe people were ghost riding the train. Not, not the case. So the ghost train, it was, it was believed to have been built in 1931, and they transported this train to Milson's Point in about 1934, 1935, somewhere in there, a long time ago, a few years before I was born, for Luna Park's grand opening, which occurred in October of 1935. So the ghost train ride was an indoor amusement park ride that was built like an indoor maze. Riders would board cars that ran along a track, which kind of meandered through the building in the dark, I've definitely seen rides like this. I don't know if I've ever been on a ride similar to this. It's kind of like the uh, the cartoon haunted house that you know has the doors that you know flap open as people are riding in in a little you know train car. So rather than a roller coaster that brings you up and down and all around, these were meant to be you know more scary, like a like a haunted house. So it would give you a tour of a haunted house in the dark. The other thing that's really cool about indoor roller coasters. I believe this one was all flat, so there's no elevation changes, no ups and downs. You just ride around and turn corners, and it's the, well, I'll call it the features of the ride that make it haunted. I've been on some where you do go up and down and all around, and the cool part about it is you can't see where you're going because it's dark. So it's pretty cool to be on a ride and you're going up, but you don't know when you're going to start going down, and that's the part that's exciting. I think those rides are really cool because you don't 
need to make the roller coaster super technical. You can do a pretty simple coaster, but since it's dark, you can't see it and there's this extra element to it. So those are always fun. Uh, I've definitely been on these. Cedar Point has one, I know for sure. I've been on that one a few times. Been to Cedar Point a lot. It's my favorite amusement park. It's in Ohio. I've been to Canada's Wonderland once or twice, but I can't remember. They probably have one, but I don't. It's not coming to mind right now. The building that housed the train was mostly timber construction, including exterior and interior walls with corrugated iron at the north end. The roof, which was in such a state of disrepair that it was unsafe to walk on, was also timber overlaid with layers of bitumen, impregnated building paper, and hot mop bitumen on top. I feel like that's probably not a valid building construction technique now, but back in the 30s, apparently that that was that was fine. I would guess also same one just even if you look at the fact that everything that you've just listed is extremely flammable but yeah this building was built in 1935 they're probably doing whatever they can to stop roof leaks from happening and you know the code is the code for sure when buildings are built but there isn't really a process for maintenance and so depending on how extensive your maintenance is and what those repairs look like you you don't necessarily need to get a permit. And that's today. You know, this is 1979 this fire happened, so it was a while ago. So in addition to the roof, there were three sets of doors on the western side of the building, which had panic bars and illuminated exit signs. There was also a small exit on the east side of the building, but it wasn't clearly marked and blended in with the walls. And some staff didn't even know the east door existed. If you have an exit in your building, especially an emergency exit, that thing should be really well marked because if you need to use it, it people need to be able to see it without having to find a door in the middle of a wall. The winding rail course, the ride cars followed, and the building design were deliberately trying to disorient passengers as part of the ride, which made it very hard to navigate in an emergency. Some of the experts that investigated the fire even said that with lights on throughout the building, they would have gotten lost if not for the rail track. It's no wonder that riders would have struggled to find the exits, even if it was two or three meters away. So as we mentioned, the fire broke out at 10.15 p.m. on June 9th, 1979. When the fire occurred, there was very thick smoke and it started to roll out of the tunnel doors. Staff raised the alarm and started to pull people from the ride as they exited the tunnel. Because of low water pressure, understaffing in the park, and inadequate coverage by the park's fire hose system, the fire consumed the entire ride. Once the fire hit the roof, it spread very quickly, and there was a lot of dense black smoke, which also contributed to exiting issues. The riders inside the ride detected the smoke as many as five minutes before they realized there was a fire. Unfortunately, though, because it's a haunted house, they thought that the smoke was part of the ride and they didn't realize there was a fire. So that also delayed the rescue efforts, the warning signals, all of that, because they didn't realize they were in danger. Which I don't think is an unreasonable thing. I mean, if it's your first time on the ride, it's dark, it's supposed to be scary, it's a haunted house, there's smoke in there. It kind of fits in with how you would expect this ride to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, if this ride existed nowadays, you would have. Either there's no smoke as part of the ride and you'd have smoke detectors inside, or if smoke was part of the ride, you'd have heat detectors inside so that you'd have some type of detection system to raise alarm if there was a fire. 
But unfortunately, that was not the case. Once the fire did start, and like Brian mentioned, it went across the entire roof very quickly. It took them an hour to get the fire under control. But at that point, the only thing that they were able to do was stop it from spreading to other rides around it. The Luna Park ghost ride was pretty much done at that point. Unfortunately, because of the fire, seven of the 35 riders died, which is 20% of the riders. That's not great odds. It's believed that the seven who perished had climbed out of their cars and were trying to escape from the tunnel. Some speculate that had they stayed in their cars, they might have survived. But then some others reported empty cars on fire leaving the tunnel. So who really knows? The entire park was inspected in October of 1977 by a senior health inspector and a district officer of the Fire Prevention Department. Following this inspection, the general manager and secretary of Luna Park were directed to do a number of things. Install illuminated exit signage at the escape doors and the availability of those doors for public use. Install safety emergency lighting. Install a fire hose reel system to allow protection to all segments of the park. These hoses, they needed to be long enough to account for internal partitions and be able to reach all areas of a building with a fully extended hose reel. There were hoses at either end of the ghost train building, but they were not long enough, and one of them didn't have a nozzle. They were also recommended to treat all curtains, drapes, and fabrics throughout the park with an approved fire retardant biannually. All of these things, to me, seem like very reasonable things that should be installed for safety purposes, to prevent the loss of life, to enhance emergency services, and really just to make sure your park is standing in, in case there is a disaster. So the park had 18 months to complete all of these things. When the fire occurred, only the emergency lighting and hose reel work were outstanding. So they had done a number of items, but they hadn't addressed the hose reel, which I think is a huge item. So the hose reel, it allows you to quick access to water to fight a fire. So it's a hose in a cabinet on a wall somewhere, and it has a nozzle on the end of it. And when the fire starts, you open the cabinet, you turn the valve to turn the water on, you pull the hose out, water starts squirting out the end of the hose, and you can use it to fight the fire almost immediately. So that's that would have been really, really beneficial. And also the emergency lighting, which impacted the rider's ability to exit the ride. So those two items, unfortunately, were really, really significant. I mean, all of these items are important, but I do think those were probably two of the more important items. And so it's unfortunate that they weren't corrected by the time the fire happened because more lives hopefully could have been saved. The owner argued that there was at least one staff member inside the building at all times that could detect a fire, warn other attendants, and help people exit. That said, that was not the case on the night of the fire. So essentially, the owner said, we have fire watch, which means that there's someone there to let everyone know if a fire breaks out inside a space. But there was no one doing fire watch when this fire happened. And and honestly, based on everything else we know, even if there was someone, there's a chance that they wouldn't have been able to find certain exits. People are still getting disoriented. The fire watch person may not know the park super well, or maybe they don't know this ride really well. And so maybe they get disoriented. I don't really know how much that would have helped. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a really tragic fire that, like everything we talk about, was completely preventable. I just don't know if having Firewatch would have helped that much in this case. 
The cause of the fire is unknown, although electrical faults and arson are the most popular theories. In fact, there is a full colonial inquiry, but they did not definitively determine the cause of the fire. They were, however, able to determine the origin of the fire, which was a new display showing a fake fire, which is ironic, but also kind of tragic. The inquiry also notes that the most probable cause was the ignition of flammable litter by a cigarette or match carelessly or recklessly discarded by a person riding on the train. Smoking was forbidden within the building that housed the train, but staff had a hard time enforcing it. This is also in the late 70s where smoking was much, much more prevalent than what it is today. Not just smoking, but smoking inside. People used to smoke cigarettes inside public spaces. You could go to your office and the person sitting next to you would be allowed to smoke at their desk. Or restaurants as well. It's crazy. Restaurants had a smoking and a non-smoking section, which didn't really do much because the smoke just drifted into the non-smoking section. I don't even know if they were divided in the 70s. I think it was all one section. They weren't. If a place even had a non-smoking section, that was... That was very, uh, very modern for the time. The engineering school that I went to, um, you could smoke in all the classrooms. You could smoke in a bunch of the labs. Not when you went there. Back then, not when I went there. I'm not. I'm not quite that old. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there were there were pictures that were up in in the department of you know classrooms that we still went to engineering school in or engineering classes in, where everyone's smoking. You know, the people are writing exams and. You know, everyone's smoking during exams. So it was a much different era where smoking was just a very common thing. I mean, it it was probably as prevalent as what cell phone use would be. Like, everyone has a cell phone. Everyone's on their cell phone all the time. Back then, everyone smoked. Everyone had a cigarette. It was just what you did. Even doctors smoked. And doctors used to do advertisements for cigarettes. Back in the day, maybe not by the 70s, but way back in the day. Brian, I have a question. Sometimes when you go on planes, not maybe not the brand new ones, but some of the ones that are still in service that are a little bit older, they still have ashtrays on them. Please explain. I, I will explain. Nicole caught me with this question off guard, so I haven't even done any research, but I do happen to know why new planes, modern planes have ashtrays or, or cigarette disposal locations on them. So in North America and Europe and a bunch of other countries around the world, different places around the world, you are not allowed to smoke on aircraft. Uh, it's, it's in federal air regulations for a number of reasons, as we've talked about people smoking on airplanes and cigarettes and lighters are not good on airplanes. But airplanes will still have a spot to dispose of cigarettes because it is recognized that people in some stressful situations or high anxiety or people that just don't like flying they may light a cigarette and, and typically where you find these disposal locations are in the in the lavatory but it's much better for somebody to put out a cigarette in a you know basically a little metal ashtray than to dispose of it in the bin where you put the paper towels paper towel is much more flammable than just a little enclosed uh, metal area so even though you're not supposed to smoke on airplanes and there's a penalty for smoking on airplanes Airplane designers and airlines have recognized that some people will try to sneak a cigarette in the bathroom and it's much better to give them a place to dispose of that cigarette than for them to dispose of that cigarette where there's a bunch of paper towels and Kleenex and it will very likely start those on fire. 
Okay, that was not quite what I thought you were going to say. Very good explanation, though. That does make a lot of sense. Do you want to hear what I thought that they were for? I, I do, actually, yeah. So I think, and I might be wrong, but I think there are some airlines that still allow smoking on board. Potentially. Maybe. And so I just think that they make all of these planes for let's say they make one model and they sell it to all these different airlines and to over time, the companies that do buy these planes will sell them to other airlines. And so eventually these planes might get to airlines that allow smoking on board and therefore they need ashtrays. That's what I've been telling myself. That also sounds fairly reasonable. Um, Airplanes are fairly customizable as long as those components have been certified by the, by the regulator. So that's also not unreasonable. The, what I had heard was that it was on the on the safety side of things. It just gave people a spot to dispose of their cigarettes if um, if they did decide to smoke them on on airplanes. Having said that, please don't smoke on airplanes. Back to Luna Park, though. The cause of the fire doesn't really matter for this episode because regardless of why the fire started, inadequate firefighting measures and low staffing on the ride allowed the fire to completely consume the ride. And seven people perished as a result of this. So as a part of the investigation, in addition to the recommendations that Brian listed from the 1977 inspection, the coroner also noted that the following precautions should have been taken. So I would say these are items that were potentially missed or not called out in the 1977 inspection that should have been addressed before the fire happened. And that's that they should have added additional emergency exits. They should have clearly marked all of the exits that they have, added smoke alarm and smoke exhaust systems, or like I had mentioned earlier, in the event that there's smoke as part of the ride, they could have added heat detection systems, which would have operated in a similar fashion. They should have added emergency lighting. Now, since the ride was registered as an amusement device under the Construction Safety Act, Emergency lighting was required. The building had been inspected twice in the six months before the fire, and those inspectors unfortunately did not enforce the requirements for emergency lighting. So that really should have been caught, flagged, and addressed well before this fire occurred, which is really unfortunate. The coroner also recommended adding a sprinkler system, which I also agree with, I think would have been a fantastic idea. We've learned from many previous fires we've talked about that sprinkler systems would have been a great addition to their firefighting methods that they have available to them. I will say back in the 70s, especially in Canada, which is where my experience comes from, we see buildings of this age all the time that aren't sprinklered. It wasn't necessarily a code requirement. Nowadays, every single building, almost every single building at least, needs to be sprinklered. There are some standalone buildings that have, you know, one store in them. Obviously, single family homes, small town homes, those kinds of things don't need sprinklers. But for the most part, 99% of buildings need sprinklers these days, at least in, in Canada and North America. Um, so there's a couple more items. The coroner recommended creating an evacuation system. And this is very important, training the staff to use it properly. There's a couple more items on the list, but before that, I just want to pause here for a second. The coroner said that if the items just listed were not in place, the ride shouldn't have operated without an attendant doing what is essentially fire watch. So the coroner actually found that 
if there was no one in place doing Firewatch, which we know there wasn't because of the investigation, that this ride shouldn't have been operating. They should have shut down the ride until they could have a staff on site to do this Firewatch. And that's something the coroner mentioned in their report. So I think that was pretty significant. Although, as I mentioned, I have mixed feelings about how successful that would be. They should also train staff to use the firefighting equipment. So not just training them on how to get people out of the building safely, but also on how to potentially fight fires so that people can exit safely. Not necessarily fight the fire from the perspective of the fire department. That's not what they're asking here. Just how to use a fire extinguisher, how to use the hose reel, how to pull the fire alarm, like just those types of things that are expected of kind of everyday people in public. The coroner also recommended to properly clean the floor and exhibits throughout the ride, which is just another way to help people exit safely so that they don't trip on anything. They can see the exits. They know how to get out safely. And then lastly, to provide adequate hoses to the fire hydrants. So as we mentioned before, the hoses were not quite long enough to reach the entire building and one of them was missing a nozzle. So there was some maintenance items that needed to be addressed so that they had hose reels that could reach the entire building. The coroner ruled that the management and staff of Luna Park breached their duty of care by not following advice to install a sprinkler system like Nicole mentioned. However, criminal negligence charges were never laid in this incident. It sounds to me like the owners were found responsible, but not maliciously so, just ignorantly responsible. Which, don't get me wrong, is still really bad. I do think, though, like if this had occurred today, it might go differently, although who really knows? One of the challenges that led to this fire was that the fire brigade has limited power to inspect structures and hold owners accountable. I've never worked in Australia, so I don't know for sure, but I hope that that has improved. I mean, this fire was over 40 years ago, so I hope that the fire department has a bit more pull in some of these inspections and their ability to hold owners accountable. I know in Canada, they do have a bit more power, still not a ton, but they are able to, I don't know if they can necessarily close businesses, but I know they can do inspections and potentially withhold business permits and other things if if safety issues are not addressed. So I, I do think that's that's important. I also, for what it's worth, having worked a lot with the fire department in Calgary specifically, I find them to be very reasonable. They're just looking to make buildings safer. They are very much willing to work with you if there's a piece of the code that seems unclear or you've got an odd site condition that doesn't necessarily fit within the code. They are very much willing to work with you to find a solution that works for everybody and meets the intent of the code. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, they're great to work with. Something interesting that I wanted to note here is that I don't think Australia follows the National Fire Protection Association standards. And I mean, I get it. The NFPA is an American standard. We follow it in Canada because we're right next door. And there's a lot of similarities in our building codes and our plumbing codes. And so it's really easy for us to adopt the National Fire Protection Association code. It makes a lot of sense for us. As I've talked about on previous episodes, NFPA, I find to be really interesting. It's one of my favorite codes. Um, So I'm really glad that we've done that. I think they do a great job of making really clear codes that are easy to follow. There's not a lot of extra fluff in those codes that are really straightforward. 
They give a lot of really good information and they're there to be helpful. Where this assumption is coming from or where this this thought is coming from is I, I remember when I was researching the Grenfell Tower fire that we covered in episode four, so way back at the beginning of the podcast, in Australia, they were experiencing the combustible cladding fires that we were seeing all throughout the UK, parts of Europe, and even the United Arab Emirates. And one thing that I thought was interesting through researching that episode is that NFPA very clearly outlines the requirements for cladding and the testing around it. But unfortunately, because some of those jurisdictions are not following NFPA, they're not adopting that code, these tests and this cladding material is getting through the cracks and unfortunately leading to some of these really, really bad fires. So if you're listening in any of those jurisdictions and you have the ability to initiate some change, see if you can get them to adopt some of the NFPA sections. They're great. They're available for free online. They're really easy to use. All you just have to say is we're using this now. Please do it. Fire's bad. So all this to say, I don't I don't know what fire safety standards are in place in Australia, um, but I hope that they've made some improvements since this Luna Park fire because it was so tragic and so preventable. In the aftermath of the fire, though, the park reopened in 1982 under a new name and new owners. The park was named Harborside Amusement Park until it closed again in 1988 after an independent engineering inspection determined that several rides needed urgent repair. The owners decided to not repair things and they did not reopen the park before the government deadline and the park transferred to new ownership. The case of the fire was reopened in 1987, but no new findings were reported. The park ended up reopening in 1995 under the name Luna Park. It closed again following noise complaints from clifftop neighbors that restricted the Big Dipper roller coaster's operating hours such that the resultant drop in attendance made the park unprofitable. Luna Park reopened again in 2004 and has continued operating since. So this park is open today. Not this, not the ghost ride, obviously, but the park itself is still there. And it's been classified as a heritage-listed amusement park since March 2010. The park has 23 attractions, including four roller coasters. So there you have it, the Luna Park Ghost Ride Fire. Like pretty much every failure we have talked about on this show, this one was preventable. Fire protection and life safety systems are critical in an emergency, but sometimes no one thinks about how a structure will react in an emergency until it's too late. The Ghost Ride fire happened 43 years ago, so I really hope that rules and regulations have changed for the better since then. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page if you're subscribed to our mini failure episodes. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the big Bayou Cannot rail disaster. A barge ran into the rail bridge and knocked the rail tracks off course, but the inbound train had no idea what they were headed for. Bye everyone. Talk soon.